Yoshi's uh, kids talk brought back uh, wonderful memories of uh, slipping off the end of the Wayala jetty early one morning and uh, swimming with a huge dolphin and feeding the dolphin with pilchards that a fisherman had dropped in a bag to me as I patted the side of the dolphin's head. It was right there and I couldn't stop smiling for a month. It was amazing. It was amazing. Now that's a good segue into this little story that I want to share with you. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves, they went out day or night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as sort of a club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick and some of them had black skin and some spoke a strange language and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, AGM I suppose, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life pattern of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the life of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. They did. And as the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old, and they evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. And if you visit the seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, only now most of the people drown. <laughs> it's a funny story. You've heard the saying, you can't see the wood for the trees. We can be so involved in the details of something that we don't understand or pay attention to the most important part. Well, that was Pharisaic religion. They were too busy trying to shore up their rigid observance of the law that could save no one 
that they could not see the salvation of God taking place right in front of them. They were blind to the one who was fulfilling the true law of God right before their eyes. They could not rejoice in the wonder of the new thing God was doing. They would not come to the party. Now, there are four practical statements that can be deduced from the teaching uh, in this passage, and they all make perfect sense. Those who are well don't need a doctor. Weddings are not the place for mourning. It's not a good idea to patch old clothes with new material, and new wine shouldn't be put in old wineskins. Now, apart from the fact that most of us throw out old clothes instead of patching them, or as I saw my daughter-in-law this morning on her way to church wearing jeans with huge holes in. If I'd done that 10, 20 years ago, they would have kicked me out, I think. <laughs> now it's, it's, uh, it's trendy. And wine now is uh, left to ferment in wooden kegs, isn't it? Not animal skins. But still we can appreciate the common sense of what Jesus was saying. It's obvious that only those who are sick need a doctor. It's obvious that it would be inappropriate for a pastor to stand up at a wedding and welcome everyone with the words, we are gathering here today to mourn the loss of our dear brother who is just about to get married. <laughs> Nor would we expect the master of ceremonies at the reception to announce that only water would be served. Fasting instead of feasting on such an occasion would be totally out of place. And the foolishness of patching a new unshrunk piece of cloth on an old garment may not be obvious in our day. Jesus tells us why. When the patch shrinks, when it's washed, it will tear away from the garment and a worse tear will be made. And then finally, putting new wine in old wineskins. That's a recipe for disaster. My mother-in-law, I'm told, once put too much sugar in a batch of ginger beer before brewing bottling the brew and I'm not sure but during the night I think they heard bottles exploding you see the fermentation process is very potent putting new wine in old wineskins will result in a similar disaster the old wineskins over time lose their elasticity their ability to expand they become hard and inflexible with age the uh, the process is the, the yeast consumes the sugar in the grape juice and it not only produces alcohol, it produces CO2. So in the end, the pressure becomes too much and the old wine skids burst and the wine's wasted and the skins are destroyed. And in Jesus' day, that, they all understood what he was talking about. You didn't put new wine in old wineskins, you put in new wineskins. So now you know when you should go to a doctor when you're sick, how not to celebrate a wedding, how to patch your old jeans, cut up an old shrunken pair. And uh, we don't make wine, do we? we? We might buy it, we might not, but we know where it comes from, not, not wineskins these days. So why did Jesus share these interesting observations? He certainly wasn't offering medical advice or showing us the best way to celebrate a wedding or how to recycle old clothing. 
or giving us some expertise on winemaking. What was he doing? What was he doing when he talked about the, the sick are needing a doctor? And that, and that healthy people have no need of medical assistance. What was he doing? He was exposing what was in their heart. Or to be more precise, what was missing in the heart of those who inferred that Jesus was compromising God's holiness by dining out with undesirables. Let's fill in the backstory. When Matthew rose from his tax booth and followed Jesus, Luke's gospel makes it clear that he gathered many of his mates for a great feast to meet Jesus. And those mates were tax collectors and others. They were hated by fellow Jews because of their greed and dishonesty. They had other friends who were invited outcasts, other so-called sinners. That's the only friends they had. Who want to spend time with corrupt tax collectors? So for Matthew to leave that lucrative job as a tax collector and follow Jesus showed that something huge was happening in his life. And he knew it and he wanted his mates to experience the same thing, to experience the amazing grace of God. He wouldn't have used those words probably, but that's what he was on about. He wanted to share. If, if Jesus wanted this worthless tax collector then maybe he would welcome his friends as well. It's refreshing to see how new believers, just like reflex, automatically reach out to their friends to bring them to Christ. That's what I'm witnessing at Mobile Prison. Guys are bringing their mates. We had, on Tuesday night, we had 33 men come to our journey meeting. They want their peers to experience what they've found. They haven't learnt that it's best to keep your faith to yourself to avoid offending others. They can't stop themselves speaking of the things they've seen and heard. Last week I received a copy of a sermon that one of the fellows is preaching now at another prison where he's gone. He left Mobile. And he's preaching this sermon. And this is a man who came alive to Christ in June of this year. How many months ago is that? Listen to these thoughts that he had on the parable of, uh, about the rich man who, in, who entrusted his gold, the talents, with three servants while he went on a journey. Listen to this. When reading this the first time, I didn't quite understand why two of the servants that doubled their gold would get to be called a faithful servant, but the one who buried it was unfaithful. I thought, that's a bit rough. He didn't spend it. He held on to it. So why the poor treatment? Reading it again, I realised the king's gold is the Lord's word and the servants are messengers. And reading it in this way changed it completely as we too are messengers and we've been given a bag of gold. His word. Now, if we came in this room and said nothing, then no one would know. Selfishly, we hold on to knowing what a difference, instead of sharing the difference this word could make to the world. He'd then take our knowledge and give it to someone else who would tell people. 
The Holy Spirit and the Holy Word are a treasure. But there's enough treasure for everyone to receive it. All you have to do is take it, share it, and if you try to keep it to yourself, you won't ever know its true worth. <laughs> so be a faithful servant. Share his treasure as the more his love is received, the brighter the Holy Spirit will shine. I read that and, boy... That's amazing. And it, it actually made me feel ashamed. I'm struggling with my sermon and he comes out with words like that from the heart to the heart. So Matthew wants to share the gold he's found. He gathers this disreputable group at his own house. He invites Jesus and the disciples to the feast. Why? Because these people were seriously in need of someone who could make them well. But there were others watching, the Pharisees, scandalised by the company that Jesus was keeping. They couldn't see the stunning miracle taking place. It was a powerful song. God and man are sat, sat down. It helps us understand what they couldn't see. Beggars, lame and harlots, prostitutes also here. Repentant publicans, tax collectors, are drawing near. Wayward sons coming home without a fear. God and man at table are set down. It's easy to condemn the Pharisees for their failure to welcome sinners like Jesus did. We need to remember that the Pharisees, as a movement, grew out of a worthy desire to honour God's holiness. And one way to honour God's holiness was to separate themselves from those who were disregarding God's holiness and to teach others to do the same. Remember Psalm 1, really was, it's really a sums up the mission of the Pharisees. Blessed is the man who works not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And that's what the Pharisees believed they were doing, separating and delighting in God's law. And that's why they were offended by Jesus' behaviour. He appeared to be disregarding the plain teaching of God's word. The only problem is that when we're so sure we are in the right and others are in the wrong, we can totally misjudge what it is in another's heart. And that's what was happening there. They couldn't see what was happening in the hearts of those tax collectors and those sinners that were coming. All they could see was their, their sin compared to their scrupulous adherence to God's holy law. Now we may not be as far in our own thinking and in our own hearts from the Pharisees. I've certainly had to face that a number of times in my life. And I'll give you one example. And I've shared this once before, but I think it illustrates this message. I, was, uh, I worked at West Care Mission for some time. We held the service at the Mission Church in uh, Wright Street. And we had a small gathering there, faithfuls, people. And often street people would come and drop into the service and then stay for the lunch after. This one day we had a service and, uh, and two Indigenous women came in 
and sat at the back and it was clear by the way they came in that they were drunk. During the service and the sharing, we discovered that someone in the church fellowship had lost someone, died. So at the end of the service, I just said, let's come together. And we all stood up and we were small enough to be able to form a circle and link hands. The two Indigenous women came and swayed up to the circle. And the circle opened up and embraced them. And as we stayed in a circle, we prayed for the the loss, the grief of, of some of our members. But I felt troubled. I felt troubled. But we compromised. You know, the, the, the purpose for which we're gathering, by just letting people come in that way. The next morning I was there I was the manager of the day centre. I was in the truck going, about to leave to pick up some stuff. And one of the women came up the driveway and stopped me. And I opened the window. And before she, before she said anything, she grabbed my face and gave me a, a kiss on the cheek. And she said, thank you. And then walked off. Later that week, I was wandering through Whitmore Square and there were quite a few people there very drunk and becoming quite uh, loud and shouting at me. And then there was this Indigenous woman sitting on the bench who got up and told them to be quiet and beckoned me to come over and sit with her. So I did. I went over and sat with her and she told me her story. She said she was a believer and only recently had lost a child. I can't remember what else she said. In my desire to have things done properly, I wrongly judged my sister. I couldn't see the wood for the trees. I was too busy trying to keep our little surf life saving club operating by the rules. I'd forgotten at that moment that it's the shipwreck that needs saving, not those sitting safely on the shore. When Jesus heard that the Pharisees had quizzed his disciples as to why he was having table fellowship with undesirables, he said, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick do. Now, Jesus was not redefining sin as a sickness that simply needs to be cured rather than confessed and repented of. And that's confirmed by his next statement. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus never minimised sin, but he did have mercy on those who were suffering under their sin and who knew it. The Pharisees showed no mercy to sinners because they'd not received the mercy of God themselves. They didn't see that they needed such mercy because they didn't see that they were in need of it. They didn't see themselves as sinners, but as righteous now, Jesus was not telling the Pharisees that they were healthy, but he knew that that's how they saw themselves, particularly when they compared themselves with others. So he made it clear that he was there for those who knew they were spiritually sick, who were beginning to understand their need for Jesus and for the salvation that he was bringing. 
And so when Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a doctor, he was making it perfectly clear why he chose time to spend more of his time sharing with outcasts instead of keeping company with those who felt they were healthy and had no need of the ministry of Christ. And his final word to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now that, that quote is from Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, remember the Pharisees, they're fulfilling all the laws and all the sacrificial rituals and doing it all by the book. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. Well, not sacrifice. Now, God did command sacrifices, but it was with a view to what God was giving his own son as the sacrifice, the overflowing mercy of God, and they could not see it. They couldn't see mercy and sacrifice. All they could see is merit earning. I'm a good person. I go to church. I do this. I do that. And Hosea, in that same passage, where that verse, he says, your love is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. You know, the dew that sun comes out, it's gone. They claim to love God. In, the, in my friend's sermon up at the prison, he says there's a big, big difference between saying I love God and loving God. Their love was like the morning mist, gone in a moment. They were chasing their idols even their religious idols. And, he's, and, and in the context of Hosea, he says, For I desire steadfast love, chesed, mercy, compassion, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God. There's the parallel. Steadfast love, the knowledge of... How do we know steadfast love? How do we know mercy? We only know it because we know God. But if we know God, then how can we not show mercy? If they aren't reflecting God's kindness and mercy to sinners, then they don't have a true knowledge of God. All the sacrifices in the world cannot replace the need to manifest God's steadfast love to those in need. So rather than rejoice in the way sinners were attracted to Jesus and were hanging on his every word, I'm amazed. We get this large group of inmates sitting there listening to us not mucking around really listening to what we're saying rather than marvel at how gracious God was in welcoming home repentant sinners. They chose rather to judge Jesus and oppose his ministry. You see, Judaism had calcified into a hard legalism that was totally inflexible and unable to contain the new wine of God's kingdom. The entire system of Judaism could not see the wood for the trees. He didn't fit in their religious box. He kept exploding the categories and formulas by which they lived and by which they sought to contain him. 
But Jesus wasn't attacking the sincere faith of those who loved God and sincerely honoured the Mosaic Covenant. He'd not come to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. He was not criticising the old, but he was showing that now the new covenant had arrived, the old was obsolete. The law, for all that was good and right in it, was still powerless to do what Christ was doing, to actually save people, which was God, what was God which, is, which was what God was always about. Jesus was not anti-law. At the same time, he had no time for all the man-made oral traditions that had been added to the law. He saw how Judaism had made a law an end in itself. He saw to the heart of the law and how it was now being fulfilled in the light of his coming. Now, it's not only the Pharisees who were critical, John the Baptist's disciples came and they said, we fast and, and the Pharisees fast and they used to fast on Mondays and Thursdays, twice a week. But why aren't your disciples fasting? They looked upon Jesus' disciples as being spiritually slack. How could they be taken seriously if they do not fast? So the first criticism was was for feasting with the wrong kind of people and now they criticise him for allowing his disciples to feast when they should be fasting. And how does he answer? Well, he uses these three other metaphors. It's uh, totally out of the question for wedding guests to fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is there? This is a time for joy. Not mourning. And all the prophets spoke of this great messianic feast, banquet of aged wine, when God will swallow up death forever and wipe away all our tears, that great, wonderful new age when we'll be swimming with dolphins. Hey, he'll remove the, the people's disgrace from all the earth. And in that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trust in him. And he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And so here, as Jesus is meeting with these good-for-nothings, waste of spaces, the messianic feast is beginning. This is the fulfilment of what was promised by the prophets. The kingdom of God is arrived. This is not a call for fasting, it's a call for feasting. And wedding, Jewish weddings, they, their celebration goes on for seven days. Forget the honeymoon, you've got to keep on eating and drinking and plenty of food, and wine, dancing and song. It's only when the, wedding, the, the bridegroom is taken from them that fasting will be appropriate. So he's not against fasting as such, it's just their timing's out. You see, their failure to join with the party shows their unwillingness to acknowledge the coming of Israel's bridegroom. And while he was with them, it's fitting that feasting replaced fasting. You know, to be silent 
to not sing and rejoice. Remember what Jesus said, if, you, if I tell these crowds to be silent when they're praising me, the, <clears throat> the very stones will cry out. To be, for the critics to remain silent was a refusal to glorify God. Because the bridegroom has come. Israel's lover and husband has arrived. And it's amazing that Jesus just so naturally applies that to himself. He knows who he is and he knows the utter appropriateness of celebrating his arrival. But he says the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. He's talking about the cross and then they will fast. The beautiful quote here, the power and the presence of the kingdom of God was powerfully manifest in the personal ministry of Jesus. But the final victory over this world was yet to come. In order to overcome sin and death, the bridegroom had to become their victim. He would be taken away. And so there would be times to fast and mourn, and there are still times now to fast and mourn. We don't see him as they saw him with them physically. We have times where we know his absence. We cry out to him. But the joy, that time when there'll be no more tears is coming, and the, the feast will never stop. What's clear is that patching the old with the new doesn't work. Uh, this, uh, the new age has come broken into history. So some things need to fall away, whilst other things will not change. But all God's law will be understood then through Christ in the light of his coming. And finally, the new wine of the kingdom was too potent for Judaism. If Jesus was to force his disciples into the mould of Pharisaic religion, it would burst and what he was bringing would be wasted. And he knew that and he would not do that. Jesus is the new wine. Traditional Judaism is the old wineskin. The new wine of the kingdom of God could not be contained by a calcified, rigid Judaism that trusted in its own righteousness and knew, knew little of the overflowing mercy of God. They couldn't cope with the reckless mercy of Jesus. But Jesus was creating a living temple of living stones that could handle the powerful potency of actually knowing and showing the astonishing mercy of God. Do we believe this? Do we know this mercy for ourselves? We are the new wineskin. You know, church history shows us again and again how churches, the life-saving clubs, became like all the rest. It's happened again and again in every denomination right down through church history. But then there's revival, there's renewal, and wineskins that have begun to lose their flexibility have been freshened and renewed. What a miracle. 
when a church comes alive again to the mercy of God and then begins to look out and to open their arms widely and reach out and welcome in. So we need to allow the Spirit of God to renew us daily, daily. Because that old hardness, that deadness, that calcification of the Spirit can happen to any of us at any time. But God is able to keep us fresh so that we remain flexible and free to express the unbounding love of Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, what a, what a surprise to see Jesus showing who you are in the most unexpected places with the most unexpected people. And if this is your grace, where are we, Father, in this? And where are you leading us? And how will you enable us to share this new wine, this pot of gold with others? Amen.